Hey, Jamie, I've got a question for you. What do you want, Tom? Who's on the podcast this coming Friday? Oh, is it someone big? Boy. Is uh, it a big one? Shall I bother listening this week? Yeah. If I was going to say uh, take. And I would say off no, your trousers. No, no. Take. Me out. No, take. Paddy McGuinness. No, take. Take on me. Take that. Wow. Have a little patience. But hang on, presumably you've only, you haven't got all three of them, have you? Presumably you've just got one of them. Buddy, we have all three of them on the podcast. They've released a new album. It's coming out. They're going on tour. They talk about the ups, the downs, the lefts, the rights, on everything that happened in Take the That. The ins, the outs. And they reveal it all this Friday. Exclusively. On Private Parts. That's a big one. I'm going to listen to that. My first guest, I had the pleasure of meeting her on a rather random, peculiar trip. We actually first met at the United States of America's government's embassy whilst they were feeding us Krispy Kreme donuts. Do you remember? <laughs> I remember the friendship was going to be real with Holly because I said to her, I might be detained in the airport because they like to ask me more questions than they like to ask other people. Um, will everyone wait for me? And everyone in the group was like, yeah, yeah, we're going to wait for you. We'll wait for you. And she was like, no, I don't know you. So why am I going to wait for you? She goes, I'll wait for you in the hotel. And I was like, you know what? I appreciate the honesty. And, and, in, in fact, go on. <laughs> this sounds so bad. But everyone was just like, yeah, I'll wait, we'll wait. All this solidarity business. I was like, look, I'm going to support you from my hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> but the but good thing was I didn't get stopped. We kind of did. And I yeah, but as, a, as a whole group. I ended up being with you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like mm. a group collective. Anyway, after that, I got to know you. And Holly Marie Cato is an incredible freelance photographer, filmmaker, who blends her passion for travel, community, and street photography. And she leads from a human narrative. That's one thing about your work that really touches me. When I go onto your Instagram page, I really do feel like I'm able to touch the texture of your work which is an incredible thing. And I'm not even saying that to gas you up. Like, I genuinely, I genuinely believe that. Um, her ability to connect with countries and international brands extends way beyond the lens and way beyond the camera. And it definitely did way into my life. And I'm hoping with that lovely, warm introduction, she'll forgive me for missing her birthday. It's Holly Marie Kato, everybody! <laughs> <clears throat> and this is the first time I'm seeing you this year. I <laughs> know. Oh, welcome to 2020. Now... My second guest, I had the pleasure of meeting in Brixton Market. 
Yep, that's right. right. What, yeah. yeah, unexpected circumstance. So my friend Danboy invited me to go to go to a mental health awareness event that I had no idea you was running or you was involved in. And I remember sitting at the back of this really cold room. Freezing. It was freezing. freezing. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. freezing. And I was really moved by this event that these young people had put on. This is going to be, everybody, the longest title you ever hear in your entire life. All right. <clears throat> Introducing Till Wikes, who is a professor of clinical psychology and rehabilitation and vice dean psychology and system sciences at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience of King's College London. She has been involved in research on rehabilitation for many years in the development of services and the evaluation of, of innovative psychological treatments for psychosis. She founded and is now the co-director of the service user research enterprise, Shaw, which employs expert researchers with experience of using mental health services. She edits the Journal of Mental Health and is NIHR senior spokesperson on mental health research. She was awarded a damehood recently for her work in mental health and is a Guinness World Record holder, a mother, a friend, a partner, and one of my partners, because together we set the Guinness World Record together. We did. And I'm very happy to have you here with us today, Professor Till. Welcome. Thank you. And before we start this, if that wasn't enough, she just won an award. <laughs> Can you tell us the award you did? Oh. We were sitting downstairs and she was like, oh, I just won an award. <laughs> I was like, okay, what award was this? Oh, and I told you it was a very, very long title so it's the Constance Pascal Helen Boyle uh, prize for the most outstanding woman uh, in improving mental health care in Europe oh. well so this episode is just going to be clearly about you <laughs> me and Holly can be your backup dancers all right Till first thing I really want to discuss here is stigma what is stigma Okay, well, stigma is, it comes in lots of forms, but it's when people have stereotypes about individuals, and particularly in mental health, they think men, people with mental health problems are they're somehow likely to be violent or odd or difficult to deal with or can't work. Um, so, but those kind of views, those perceptions, could spill over into something called discrimination, Mm -hmm. So that, that then that affects their behaviours towards people with mental health problems. And that really does affect the mental health of the person who is at the, you know, the back end of it. And one of the difficulties is that means that the person with mental health problems not only has to deal with their own mental health problems, they also have to deal with how society the, and the public thinks about people with a mental health difficulty and often these stigma problems, these perceptions are wrong. They're just absolutely wrong. So people who, you know, people who think that people, individuals with mental health problems are violent, it's wrong. They're more likely to experience violence than they are to be violent themselves. Wow. And you, nobody much knows that. Um, it's partly because I think the headline news in a, on the front page with anybody with a mental health problem won't be this person has done good deeds, it will be this person has done bad deeds. Mm. And that colours completely the way that the public think about mental health issues. Wow. Um, and that is a big difficulty for all people with a mental health problem because if there's stigma, they sometimes take on 
the the stigma of society and actually sort of almost self-stigmatize themselves. They think, oh, well, I can't do that. The people don't expect me to be able to do those things, so I really, maybe I just can't do them. Mm-hmm. So they could isolate themselves from, from individuals or not attempt to do things or take up opportunities of you know social relationships or work because they feel like they're not going to be able to do it because that's what the public think. Wow, brilliant answer. Um, Holly, have you ever seen stigma? Um, stigma, yes, a big word. Um, in a sense of like mental health issues, I would say yes. Um, we've talked about this before and I think coming from the black community, mental health was something that wasn't discussed a lot. And then I grew up in in a black Caribbean church. And we always, if you even talked about whether you felt depressed, you felt that those weren't discussions we necessarily had, but everything was bring it to Jesus or Jesus will fix it. Mm-hmm. And so like there was very little communication whatsoever. And then that creates stigma because no one's talking about it healthy. And, and, it's, and we were kind of told... It was almost like you shouldn't talk about it. That is the stigma. Um, and if you had some type of mental health issues, there was like, it, it wasn't something that you should even discuss or seek yeah. help and deal with. And so... So does that mean you that it, they actually pre- almost prevented you from contacting people who might have been able to help? Well, like we just in never really services? had those, those conversations, to tell you the truth. And then it, it doesn't even, it's not even an issue within the home. Say if, um, and I was reading an article recently that was talking about how often um, black people are more likely to be misdiagnosed and not to give, not identified that they might have mental health issues, whether that's depression or anxiety. And then, and then even if they are, the way that it's dealt with is often more through medication other than here's, here's the opportunity to get counselling or therapy. Um, and so, like, there's there's so many layers to it. And then I guess, like, now I would say things are changing within the black community because um, it's a conversation that's happening worldwide and it's happening from whether it's, like, social media on your phone and then those conversations are happening within the household um, and it's happening in schools, right? We're talking about mm. what does mental health look like? What does anxiety look like? Um, and then I guess the good thing is, is that, say, like, even within the church community, if they now understand that there's an importance that before two people get married, they get some form of couples counselling. So if you understand that two technically healthy people should still get counselling, then someone who is struggling, their need is even greater, right? And so that that shift is happening and it's it's good to see. Well, it is really good to see because I know that, you know, there are organisations like Black Thrive that started in Lambeth and that group of people really has tried to break down stigma by making it obvious to people mm-hmm. what that it's not something to hide yeah. and that there are importantly there are things you can do to help right. and i think it's when you don't have the opportunity to go for help that i think that's a problem because stigma stops you from going to help to get help from services because you deny that you've got the problem right but we know that if after people have actually received services, then the public's view of that person changes as well mm. because they know that they've been and they've got help and they think that's a good thing. Mm. So, so it's, 
really odd that the stigma stops you from, from going to get help. And yet, if you do go to help get help, that reduces the stigma of the right. public around you. Because yeah. I guess people get to see and relate to, oh my gosh, well, that person went to go get therapy. Therapy is not so scary. Exactly. But before that, you were seeing, oh my gosh, you're insane. You're incapable. Yes. You're, and it's all of those things you talked about before, yeah. right? Um, which is amazing every time a celebrity or someone talks about, hey, I went to go get therapy, or a friend says it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's so much power in that. Yeah, absolutely. Whilst on that note, when I went to get therapy to begin with, um, after my mother passed away, I went to Harley Street because I was like, oh, that's the place you should go because that's the place where everybody goes. Um, my therapy journey was not successful there. I felt like it was a very daunting experience. So basically, you, for those people that aren't aware of what therapy looks like, you go into a room and you're talking to somebody who is a stranger to you and there's a little clock. And you, in the silence of the room, you can hear the clock ticking. And then at times I felt like, why am I even talking to you? And it was really interesting because one thing I think that nobody ever talks about is the relationship you need to develop with a therapist. It's not walking one hour, you get cured, you get healed, they wave a wand and you go back out. It's a process and it's a journey. And I want to take this time to flag, there's an incredible website I discovered called baatn.org.uk, which is the Black African and Asian Therapy Network the largest therapy network in the UK, which is like a therapist directory, and it specialises on ethnic minority groups because I feel like I would have benefited to speaking to somebody who understood what my home looked like. Mm. Because that's really important because sometimes in my therapist discussion, they'll be like, oh, have you told someone at home? And I'm like, no, that's why I'm here. <laughs> and some people wouldn't understand why. Some ther- I had to go to three therapists before I found the right therapist which was really interesting because the the therapist I ended up actually getting the most from was actually a white lady. So it wasn't a Pakistani person. But had I known there was Pakistani people providing therapy, maybe it might have been it might have been better for me at the start because going through therapy I think is a challenge in itself because if you have a bad experience it can put you off. That's absolutely true, but do you think that um, it took a while for you to kind of bed in? Because I know that's, you know, mm. sometimes, you know, people just don't hit it off and it isn't possible to ever mend it. But I think therapy relationships take a little time to yeah. kind of, because you because what a therapist needs to do is to, to form a relationship so that the person feels confident in being able to talk about their difficulties without being, with with respect and can provide some at least advice at the beginning which is genuinely um accepted by the by the person going for therapy and feels like that's a that's important and a you know something they hadn't thought about before yeah so i do think therapy is a process but the process is also in the relationship as well as in the ability to talk 100 percent, i agree with you and i think the problem i faced Sorry, I'm not making this a therapy session. (laughs) But I think we need to shine a magnifying glass on this because people don't really know what to expect. I think the problem I faced when going to therapy the first time, no thought to the therapist themselves, was me actually telling my story for the first time. And then actually hearing it and then thinking, then overwhelming myself by thinking, oh my God, look at my life, look what's happened. And now I've got a therapist, oh my God. And then... At that point, I didn't even want to hear what the other person had to say. 
Mm. I was just hoping the time was going to run out and I could I could run out the room. But saying that, I definitely recommend talking services. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big thing. Definitely. Well, there is something called IAPT as well, which is uh, it's called Increasing Access to Psychological Therapies. And it's all over the country. And it's um, therapists in the NHS who provide um, support and counselling at different levels. So if you join the IAP service, you can self-refer to the IAP service. You can either have some online therapy at first if, it, if the problems aren't too um, difficult or severe, or you can have face-to-face therapy at different levels of face-to-face therapy. So it's something that people out there should know about. It's called IAPT because it's I-A-B-T. Yeah. Um, but it is all over the country and you can get referred there by your GP or you can go online and find the therapist. Amazing. I wanted to ask you a question, Holly, because I, I come from a Muslim background. And one thing I noticed that was really interesting was very similar to what you were saying. In my community, growing up, nobody would ever dare talk about anything. And that ranges from the stigma of divorce to the stigma of depression, mental health, um, like not being able to have babies as a couple. That's another huge one in my community. There's so many issues that are like swept under the rug. But one thing I found really interesting was when I went to the graveyard, the graveyard now provides bereavement counselling. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was really happy. I was like, wow, like this is not something I've ever really seen anybody in my community campaign for. So someone's like actually providing bereavement counselling for people who are going through bereavement. Why do you think these changes are coming? I think these changes are coming because of people like you who literally sit and spend their time like normalising these things and talking about loss and talking about what it feels like to feel depressed and sharing that in like the most vulnerable way mm-hmm. to people. And the thing is, is that you say in, you're not an academic, right? Mm-hmm. And so your audience, you're reaching everyday people and they're connecting with what you're experiencing. Even if they haven't gone through the same thing, they might be connecting with that emotion. And then because now we're having these conversations and there's a need for it. And you know what? Even from the stats, like, look at young people and suicide. These are all very real things, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that nowadays is very hard to deny and ignore it because it's so in your face. And with the power of social media and the fact that it's out there, it's harder to ignore these things. And so maybe there has always been some form of bereavement counselling, but now it's more readily available. I was going to say back to your therapy um, when you were talking about getting that. And, you know, I've, I've been through therapy and I was really blessed. I was really lucky with my first therapist. How did you, how did you find him or her? I found her so randomly. So um, a friend who had moved uh, to Ghana was coming back to London and said, hey, I've got, uh, I can't meet everyone separate, but I'm going to host a brunch. Come to this brunch. Um, it'll be a group of my friends there. So I, I didn't really think anything mm-hmm. of it. So I turned up to this brunch with a bunch of her friends and sitting at the end of the table was this woman who wow. was a therapist and it was actually a group therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> Did she invite everyone at the end? <laughs> Listen, well, the thing is, I was, she was like, oh yeah, just pay this small amount of money like to reserve the table for this. I didn't think anything of it. So I turn up and it's literally group therapy. Um, wow. Mate, like... No, it actually was group therapy. <laughs> no, 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 for real. It the was, brunch was group therapy? Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Like the therapist 
yeah, so she was running a session. But your friend we told you you was going brunch? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I did. And maybe there was more information there, may, but it did not reach my ears. So I turn up for one thing and I'm like, I'm there in tears, just like going, what the heck is going on? So what did group therapy look like? Um, gosh, what was that? Because since then I've been to other group therapy sessions that she's run, but I also I started doing one-on-one with her. Um, and she's a black woman who's also a Christian. So there were so many dynamics that I just didn't have to explain there. Because yeah. I'm not having to explain like cultural intricacies because as much as I love, say, um, Chinese culture, I am not going to know every intricacy to mm-hmm. do with that or Cantonese or the... And so like having that there where I'm not having to explain these things was so refreshing. But And it was felt like I'd been seen and it was also a safe space, right? Um, I can't remember the internet, but I think she just started. We had like our own little pack. I remember was writing stuff down, um, and then it was just like uncovering. Wow, I think the the takeaway was I was sitting there listening to this woman, and I was thinking she needs to be my therapist. I need therapy, and I think it was something I knew I needed anyway. Mm-hmm. And then number two, I was like, wow, this is uncovering a lot of issues, but I felt safe in a public space. I am literally emotional, and yet I felt safe. And for her to be even able to foster that environment, and I know group therapy is not for everybody, um, but yeah, that was incredible. Wow. Um, so is that what you thought when you said you got a good therapist? Was it because you had exactly the same thing, a safe space to talk no, about No, mine was completely different. Huh. So yeah, we started one-on-one sessions. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes I would, I would like Skype sessions even. But I remember before I'd met her, I was a bit like, I am, you know what? I knew what I needed, but up until then I'd been really unsuccessful. So I went through the NHS and they did this survey with me and then someone calls you up and says, we think you'll benefit from, I think it was like cognitive... Behavioural behavior. Right. And then they sit there and they're like, well, now we're going to ask you some stuff. So they sit there, they ask you all this traumatic stuff about yourself. You, you bring it all up to them and yeah. then they go, yeah, you'll benefit from this. You'll go on a waiting list. Um, goodbye. Yeah. And I was like... But that was my first time sharing my story to a stranger on the other side of the phone. They've delved all this stuff up in me. It was very painful. And then the phone was put down and it was goodbye. Wow. And I was like, this, this is it. And there was no like, and I, and I almost said, if you, and I think she said, you're going to have to wait three to six months for a therapist. And I was like, but why would you, I think I even said to her, why would you make me go through all of that without even forewarning me that, I would have to A, wait this long. Mm -hmm. But as I was like, there doesn't seem to be that level of care there. It wasn't handled very well. Um, And I think if I was waiting for that therapy list, up until now, I think I'd still be waiting because truthfully, no one's got back. And I I do understand that there is a massive demand for these things and it's just not enough people there who's able to give help. But yeah, that was my first encounter with this is therapy. So it wasn't great. But I think because I was around people like you who were talking about it and the fact that the benefits it can do, it was something that I knew I needed. And then if it wasn't for that friend inviting me to brunch... Shout out that friend. I like that friend. Yeah, Yeah. Elon. Thank you. Yeah, very good. Wow, I feel feel like it's destiny. Yeah. That was destiny. And you said a line that really hit me. You said when you first sat there, you felt like you'd been seen. Yeah. What does that mean? 
because up until then, like we talk about stigma, so there had been no conversation. And for someone to be talking about whether it's like therapy, whatever, but she was, she started just like saying lines where it resonated with mm-hmm. me and I'd never had that. And I was sitting there going, yeah, I, I, I can relate to that in my head. And I was thinking, hmm, yeah, I think I've experienced that too. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, All yeah, that, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. my life. And then, um, and when you would then say things, there was no judgment there. Um, and it, and then it was just like, oh, wow, this is what it feels like. Because up until then, yeah, there wasn't that conversation. And even if friends knew that you were kind of struggling, they, it wasn't something that was like talked about. Like they were just like, oh, you're the happy friend or you're, yeah. or you're the encouraging friend. You encourage yourself out of this. And then that was it. So, wow. yeah. I'm very glad you went to that bunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Till a question I have for you. Yeah. I think the stigma has changed since I've been alive. Um, what do you think from, the, from when you started to where you are now? Have you seen much change? I've seen a massive change. Um, I, I, I think it's because we do now talk about it. So it's not just people like you, but over the last 20 years, it's first of all been, you know, it's in, in really good soaps like EastEnders and Hollyoaks yeah. talk about it. Mm. And they've, you know, they've talked about it, these things for a long time and they've given a kind of a story, an everyday story about what it could be like yep. to experience that mental health problem. And I think, you know, the, the general public now are more educated. I think that we, um, we've come to realise, and this is interesting because I've done some work on, you know, what research we ought to be doing in mental health. And we now know that mental health issues cost the economy a lot of money. So what that means is that the finance people are really in the government are really interested in it in the treasury and in across Europe in all of the finance ministers. And so they start to say, well, we need to know more about this issue and how we can do something. So they then say we should fund more research in this area to know what to do. And that research is then got into newspapers as being positive stories about mm. about moving the mental health dial. Yeah. So we now know more about it. We know about the sort of social effects as well as maybe the genetic effects, all of those things. And, and they are starting to replace the stories, which is about the kind of mad axeman that used to always be only in the paper about people with mental health problems. So you increase the optimism about what can change and what treatments might be available to people, not just medical treatments, but psychological treatments. We understand, you know, the relationship between mental health and poverty. And I think that's moved the dial. And um, I was just before this podcast, I was telling Hussein about trying to get um, people in the media to write something about what it felt like to get a diagnosis of mental health problems. And I can tell you, when I was doing it, which must be 15 years ago, it was really, really hard because people I knew had a mental health problem just didn't want to admit to it in public. Mm. But actually, over the last five years, lots of people have have said positive things about... Well, not positive things, but they've talked about 
their mental health problems or their relatives' mental health problems. And when people stood up, I don't know whether you remember, but um, Charles, I've forgotten his other name, but he's an MP, Charles Mm -hmm. Walker. And he stood up in Parliament and he said he suffered from OCD all his life. And then a Liberal got up and said that she had problems. And a Labour member got up and said he had mental health problems in Parliament. That made a a massive difference as well. Yeah. Because people could see that individuals with mental health problems weren't held back by that by those issues. So, you know, I think we've got a lot to to um, praise those people for standing up when it must have been quite tough yeah. to do that because, you know, you may get labelled as the mental health person, not as the person who's still an MP mm. who wants to do a lot of work in different areas. Um, and, you know, so I think that's really important and all of those things have changed the dial on mental health. And now we, you know, we've talked talking about it in schools. You and I yeah. have talked to a lot of schools about um, mental health issues. I, I wanted to ask you about that as well because I feel like we've never, I've never actually asked you a question that I've always wanted to ask you. When I first emailed you or DM'd you on Twitter saying, <coughs> "Let's do this world record attempt," what was that like for you to have? some like some young random person from east london say yeah me and all my friends want to learn what you're talking about because no one's no one's teaching us anything and we don't know anything about it but you know everything about it like because you just said like when you first started people didn't want to talk and i feel like my generation all we a lot of us want to do is share yes that's true and i you know when you I think actually you rang me up and asked me about it because, you know, I wasn't into any technology. (laughs) I've only got into it relatively recently. Even my mobile phone gets left behind quite often. That's healthy. Yeah. It's very healthy. healthy. We were actually talking about this. That's very healthy. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing that ran through my mind was, can I do this? You know, actually now I can feel my stomach in exactly the same kind of feeling with the butterflies and the kind of crunch, you know, am I able to do this? The being slightly anxious and a bit stressed but actually it was incredible it was incredible and we had an incredible group of people working with us 100% and the way you taught mental health was very interesting we had these placards true or false and a lot of it was um, audience engaged and yeah to hold their placards up yeah yeah well I think that's what you need to do because it's like a lesson and it's very hard in a huge theatre as we were doing the Guinness World Record, to get people engaged in saying what they thought about it without having to say anything. Mm. So just holding up a piece of paper which said true or false was actually mm-hmm. a lot easier. Yeah. Wow. Holly, mm-hmm. question for you. One thing I think you're able to capture very well is emotional empathy from other people. Oh, wow. That's big. It's yeah. true. <laughs> I think it's true. How, how, how do you do that? How do I capture empathy? Yeah, do you as so like a lot of your photos mm, they seem very raw and they tell mm, stories through people's faces with pain and their issues and their situations. So do you have a conversation with the person before like so, how, how does it how, what's yeah. the process? So actually the I think and I think photography has been an excuse to kind of have conversations that I've always wanted to have with people, but it's become that gateway to now do that. Now you've got a reason yeah. to sit down. Art challenges the stigma massively. Yeah, and um, and so 
I think the best example of this is sometimes when you're meeting someone, it's putting down your camera in order to have a better picture. Put it down, wow. get to meet them, talk to them, hear their story, and then the final thing is capturing that interaction, right? And so I was in a job once in Kenya, and we and it was a very tight um, like film schedule. And um, I remember the people who had hired me said, you know, when you go up, so we were filming Maasai in this rural tribe in the Great Rift um, Valley of Kenya. And they said, you know, when when you come up, they're going to start singing and dancing. That's the way that they, like, greet you and say hello. And maybe you want to film this because it doesn't always happen. But I just remember in that instant, I was like, no, I feel like I should be present. If the first time someone's meeting me and they want to greet me as a person, my camera's now up in my mm. hands as a barrier between me and them. Yeah. I'm not fully present and I'm not accepting that greeting. And that's a blessing, right? Um, so I put down my camera, was engaging um, with that whole mm. ceremony and it was beautiful. And I remember as it was all happening and the women were singing and holding your hands and greeting you, I started, a woman started looking at me and she was one of the elders and I started looking at her. And we just had this like really intense interaction and I knew she was an elder. So then um, when people kind of broke away, um, I went up to her and we started speaking through a translator and then by the end of our interaction that night, I just remember, like, we were holding hands and it was, like, wow. so beautiful. And then um, that night, uh, so a lot of Maasai culture happens around campfire. And so all the neighbouring communities gathered together, the men, women and children, and they were announcing things that had happened that day and greeting us. And she got up. We call her Nancy. Her name is uh, Nemama. And she's a 75-year-old woman, great grandmother and great-grandmother. And she said in front of the whole tribe, you know, I have nine children, but today God has blessed me with a tenth. And she introduced me as wow. a tenth child. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. And was just like, yeah. And then How was that for you? It was just incredible. And then, like, I got to meet her children that were present. And then they gave me a name in ceremony. They gave me a massive wow. name. But, and then afterwards, the stuff that I captured was so much richer because I spent that time to put down my camera and to physically engage with someone. Because sometimes you can miss all of those special mm. moments. Um, and in the following week, we, we had some more filming. And I remember as I was leaving, like, she was crying. Like, there was a real connection. And even now, every now and again, I'll get a WhatsApp text from her son. Uh, when he's in range of signal, he'll yeah. send me a WhatsApp text. I'll send one back. And truly, it is the slowest conversation in human history. <laughs> yeah. But it's so beautiful. And it's always the same questions. Mum wants to know how you are. The cow that we have for you is still there. <laughs> are you now married? <laughs> when are you coming to see us? But it's like, wow. it's like so... Yeah, and so like... Um, maybe that answers your question. No, it does. I think, I think clearly from hearing that people trust you. Mm. Like photography, art, storytelling in any capacity when it comes to people's situations, you have to trust the person. Yeah. And I think one thing I definitely see from looking at your work is whoever you are capturing is trusting you to tell their story. But also just giving that time. I think that only happens with time, right? Yeah. If you go in all guns blazing, I've got to do this job. But if you actually give people time and like so much great things happen when you have time to just sit mm. with people... And sometimes that's like healing or it's revelation or it's like these beautiful connecting moments where now it's never going to be just a job in Kenya. It's going to be like, wow, I'm leaving part of myself there, but I've wow. I've gained part of myself. Do you know what I mean? And, and there's like, now I always want to go back there and 
because they they're like family mm. to me now. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's well. no, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I've never heard that story before. That's mm. a beautiful one. <laughs> when I was growing up, till do I call you professor? Yeah, call me yes. professor for a very long time. <laughs> I'll call you professor just because I can. Um, professor T. Professor Jeez. T. Yeah. Um, bullying in school evolved. It's evolved in our time. It has gone from not that it doesn't still exist on the playground. It does, but it is now evolved into cyberbullying, and cyberbullying affects many children, young people, students massively. And the question I want to ask is, do you think there's a stigma around cyberbullying? And um, do we need to do more to educate the elder generation of the effects, the psychological effects that cyberbullying has on children? One of the issues with cyberbullying is it's never, it never arrives in children without there also being face-to-face bullying. Mm. That's also part of it. So... Um, there's always this face-to-face issue as well as the cyberbullying. One of the problems of cyberbullying, though, is that it can be carried out both with people effectively anonymously um, without you actually knowing who it is who's doing some of this stuff, which is clearly a big problem. And, we, and it is, does have an effect. Um, it, it does have an effect on, uh, on children, as bullying does. We know that if you're um, adolescent or an adult who's got a history of bullying, you're more likely to have mental health problems. Mm. And so we do need to make sure we try and stamp on bullying. We don't say, you just need to be resilient, you need to just stand up to the bully. That doesn't help. We've really got to work out a way of stamping the whole thing out and making it, it's not okay to be a bully. And I think that we are... The problem is that when those uh, stories about bullying come out, particularly in places like Hollyoaks, it's not a programme that adults really watch. Mm-hmm. So I think the only thing that we can really do is to start to tell people about the research that we already know about, that's carried out down the road, in fact, at the place that I work in, um, which is following through people from childhood through to adolescence and adulthood, showing the development of major problems in in uh, adolescence and adulthood when you've got these precursors of bullying and those often those result the effects are worse when the person who's being bullied never had anybody to talk to about it and didn't have the kind of social supports that we hope they should have had mm-hmm. so they should be um, they should be educated but i think the people who should be educated are also the people doing the bullying at the time and that we need to have more social support from friends to help stop some of that bullying i mean we've it's always been the case that there's been some bullying that and harassment that's gone on Mm. um but usually it's not been dealt with seriously we just need to deal with it in a serious fashion now not just what does that look like well, I think we it's exactly the same as you were, Holly was saying about not feeling you can talk about it. We have to make a an environment where people are allowed to say what's happening to them if it's upsetting them. And we need to perhaps educate parents about what they can look out for in terms of, you know, if bullying was going on, what 
changes in behaviour you might find um, in your child so that you can keep an eye out for them. Because sometimes parents just think, oh, the reason they're just staying in their room and they're not going out is that they're at that age, you know. <laughs> or they're just on <laughs> their phone. Yes, yeah, yeah. and, and actually you just need to ask, you need to have somebody ask you the question. You know, there's that question, are you okay? Do not accept the first answer. No, tell me really, are you really okay? You mm. can tell me. And, that, and you need to be able to ask that question. If you ask it often enough of somebody, maybe in the end they will really tell you what's going on in their head. Um, and we need to be able to... There's a fine line between people feeling they can tell you something which is really happening in their life and people wanting to attract attention because of a minor thing that's happening in their life. Yep. So there is this problem within children saying, I'm depressed. You don't really know whether they are just saying, I'm a bit sad, or it's part of you know the ups and downs of everyday life that sometimes you feel happy and sometimes you don't feel quite so happy. And you might think of that as being a bit depressed. We need to make sure they understand what the words mean um, but we also need to, to latch on to when traumatic things are happening to people because we know that trauma is related to future problems in adult life. Um, it's not always related, so there's not a one-to-one -one thing. Mm -hmm. It often depends on what happens to you at, at the time of the trauma and a little afterwards, which is about support and helping you change the way that the trauma might have made you feel. Mm -hmm. And, and that will help you to build up coping strategies and to feel you've overcome something. You know, if you feel you're a survivor rather than a victim, that is really positive for the rest of your life. 100%. Yeah. Did you always know you wanted to get into this when you were younger? <laughs> well, I ran out of... I lived in a village with... A, with, with in, the, in, in a place called Allsager, which is in Cheshire. Okay. Um, the... We luckily had a library, not very many of those left I know now, but we had a little village library and I ran out of all the books when I was in the children's section, when I was wow. a buyer. Just like the story of Matilda or something. Yes. <laughs> so I then, I then was allowed to look, to read some of the fact books in the, uh, in the library and I got an educational psychology, quite a thick book out of the library. At what age, do you remember? I was about... 12, 13, 13, I suppose. Wow. I didn't understand most of it, but it, some of it that I did understand, I quite liked. But my, the story I tell is that if I'd been a bit taller, I might have been an accountant or an archaeologist because they were on the top <laughs> shelf. <laughs> and I, I was just level with the peas on, yeah, the, on, yeah. the, on the list. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. You know what you was talking about, about empathy mm -hmm. and then was talking about the classroom mm. this is what it come i was thinking about often when bullying does happen online right it's behind a screen and so like if we're talking about why this happened kids are going to be less empathetic if if you say a mean word to someone but you and you're in a classroom you say and i say a mean word to jack and then i see jack's face crumple and oh my gosh that was really sad and I've now hurt Jack's feelings. Yes, yeah. I now am like, it. oh my gosh. You see that I've hurt Jack. Yes, the it's public. The problem is now, yeah. 
you can say a harsh word to someone. You can say whatever you want. It's behind a screen, right? That yeah. I'm not physically seeing your interaction for it, but I might get to see, oh, I've got five likes on that mean comment that I said yeah. or whatever it is. And that happens on like the small level, but then the media plays into that. They get so many more clicks from yeah. a newspaper if they say something about someone that's quite yeah. horrible or vilifying. And it's so, it, yeah, yeah. It, do you know what I mean? So we're, so we're being taught to be less empathetic yeah. because everything's happening behind the screen. I, I definitely agree with you. And I definitely think there's a huge normalization of brutalization in today's world mm. like this. The situations that are currently happening that we see with celebrities or people that aren't even in this celebrity aisle, popular culture, being victimised and dragged in the mm. court of online social media gathering for the jury of people to just say whatever they want to them. And that is very unfair because there's no precautions. I, I genuinely feel like I would love to be alive to see cyberbullying become a criminal offence. So have you ever been bullied yeah, online? I, yeah, I, I do definitely get comments, but compared to some of my mm. friends, like, it is nothing. And some of the stuff I see people having to go through, like, mm. it's so unnecessary. It's so uncalled for, and it's just like... But again, it's that loss of empathy. Yeah, we've lost it. What yes. And they're yeah. not seeing the impact and the effects of it. Saying that, um, what's your situation like with your mental health currently? Ooh. Um, I would say, I don't, I almost was apprehensive to say good. Yeah, but you, you, like, look, you look like you're glowing. <laughs> you look like you're glowing. I would, I would say this is probably like the best it's been in like two years. Way! <laughs> That's a celebration. Um, yeah, and like it took so much effort to get here. It took like therapy. It took, it took, so part of that was even like exercise. And yeah. Hussein would call me up. <laughs> I would be like, how are you? Go for a run. Go for a run. <laughs> send, send me your selfie when you're done. And what people don't realise is for like, what, almost a year or we eight months? We just kept sending each other sweaty pictures we of We would send out sort of sweaty <laughs> selfies that I would never send to anyone else. And I told my mum that, that like, yeah. I think yesterday she had no idea that for like eight months. And like, he got me running and doing stuff. And I was well, just like, Coach hey, Bennett, hey. Coach Bennett, definitely. Shout out to Coach Bennett from Nike. But like, I'm free let You know what I mean? I'm free let <laughs> Come on. But like, truly, um, I was just like, saying, I can't, I can't run. I can't. And he's just like, no, you can't. You can't. You can do it. Like, just do it. And so like, he, he's got me up exercising all the time yeah. and, and like we came, running we came to this really good point in our friendship where all our conversations would be would be a screenshot of the distance we ran yeah. <laughs> and then the reply would have to be like if I'm in bed I'm waking up first, I look on my phone I'm like oh she just ran four, 5k oh, oh whatever <laughs> I'm like <sighs> Fine. Now I've got to go yeah, around. Yeah, but it was so it's motivating. Good. It was pushing 100%. each other. And like now we do less of those selfies because it's become, I guess, more of a routine for each other. But like when I needed that, man, you were there. And even those questions, how are you today? Massive. Yeah, no, likewise. Um, and so, yes. Yeah, so do you think, because exercise is positive for mental health. Yeah. It clearly is a good thing mm-hmm. to do. And it's a good thing for everything because physical and mental health are also mixed together they're not completely separate but do you think that because you mentioned freeletics do you think that the relationship you had to encourage each other to get moving Mm. was the key to actually improving your mental health or do you think it because do you think if you just relied on an app to say 
Oh, you did very well today. You could do another bit. Do you know what? <laughs> you know what I think really helps. <laughs> Apps like Freeletics—they collect your data. So that's the data of mine I want to be collected. The distance I ran, the time it yes. took me, okay. the weather, the weather conditions that I ran. So yeah. sometimes I'm flicking through and I'm like, I ran 10K in rain. Yes. <laughs> in November. You're seeing that progress and what you was able to do. That's the thing. Okay. Yeah. So I get that like encouragement. Yeah. yeah. So I get that encouragement to get up like by you. But then what the app does is it proves to me, say if I I am looking for it, it goes, Wow, look at your progress. Look at what you was able to achieve. And say on a day when I don't want to run, I'll open up this app and I'll go, No, nah, but look what you've done. Like yeah. you've got yes. to keep this dumb, up. Yeah. And then that's like the motivation. Hundred percent. Yeah. And I think as well, like I've discussed this with Danny and Leon on the previous episode, um, so I don't want to get too deep into it, but it's it's about the mentality you have when you're going into something like that. You can't just be like, you can't say, to, if I say to you, oh, Professor, I'm feeling depressed, and you say to me, oh, go for a run. Like, <laughs> no, it's no, not no. the right approach. No, it, it's it's no. like, it's a component part of a bigger yeah. picture. Yeah. I just want to end this now mm-hmm. with a question to both of you. What great cultural shifts of stigma have you seen? I'll start this while you can think of an answer. Um, I was in mosque the other day and the imam who is like the person leading the prayer, he's giving a speech and he's talking before the prayer starts. And a lot of young people are disengaged with him when he's talking because they're on their phone. So he turns around and says, all right, everybody, I'm on Snapchat. (laughs) And he says, everyone wants to talk about mental health and I understand you might not want to come up to me in the mosque because even though it is a safe environment, a lot of people do feel like if they are seen to be look to seem to look weak or or whatever they they are thinking, he says, I'm on Snapchat. I know everyone in here is on Snapchat, so send me your questions on Snapchat. Wow. And we'll address them like that. And for me sitting there listening to this, I was like, this is revolutionary. <laughs> I'm so here for it. And like all of a sudden he's getting questions about depression, about this, about anxiety, about blah, blah. And everyone's having a conversation. So for me, that was a, it's a great cultural shift. Anyone else? Um, I would say my cultural shift, I'm going to bring it back to my family. So I was sitting with an uncle recently and say like these words like, oh, we've got to unlearn bad habits that we had from our parents or our, that we like normalize and all this stuff. And in the past, he's been like, unlearn. What, what does that even mean? He's like, people that go to therapy, weak, weak. Mm. And then I shared with him and I said, well, you know, I've been to therapy. Does that make me weak? And after a very long conversation, he turned around and said, you know what? I'm really sorry because I've, I've, I, I speak without thinking, but also it's because I've never understood this because this was on conversations that we had mm-hmm. growing up within my family. We was just working to survive. So we didn't get to time to now, okay, now we're out of survival mode. How do we now thrive, right? And to like live a healthy life, not just live a life. And we ended up having that conversation. And then he was just like, I'm so glad I've had this with you. I want to now have it with my daughter. Wow. And that to me, that was like, yeah, that was incredible. And just like having that on a small scale to know that that's happening in homes everywhere, yeah. right? So, yeah. I've been sitting here thinking, I've got so many, I don't know how yeah. to choose one, or maybe I can just choose two. Yeah, do two, please. So so one of them is actually in my own research where we 
employ people who are called service user researchers because they're expert researchers and have a background in using mental health services. And they, um, they were thought of as an oddity for quite a while. And now nobody thinks twice about involving mental health, no, sorry, service user researchers in their research programs. We get invited to um, help people to design the research wow. so that they have the understanding from both sides, the research and the mental health side. So I think that's one cultural shift. They respect shift. it. They do. And at the beginning, it was like, oh, this is just PC, you know, you know. But now it's just part of everyday research. But the other one is one you may remember, which is when we gave one of our talks, I think it might have been in um, the Ilford Town Hall. Yes. There was a group of kids who came from a challenging behaviour unit sitting at the front. And afterwards, one of them, one of the guys said, oh, I thought Sharon was just you know, begging for attention when she was cutting herself. Now I know that's Mm. not true. And actually, to change his mind um, was fantastic. And that was just off the... You know, it wasn't that he, um, you know, was asked a question. It was just he said that was really good. And I think that was... A key that was, I think, the first talk we ever gave together. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And, you know what else was really beautiful about that? The students that came from that school was a pupil referral unit, so it's a pru. They never get to go on school trips, so no. that would be the only school trip that they went on, and it was that. So I'm glad. I'm glad we were able to make an impact, well, especially you. I just felt like I was just an event organizer. No, I and, think and we a would. Hype, and a hype blowing up balloons, <laughs> blowing up. <laughs> Well, ladies, that is the end of episode five. Wow, thank you very much for joining me, sharing your knowledge, your stories, your trips. That can I ask before you end? Because this is your final one, right? Yeah. What's been your biggest takeaway since doing this podcast? Ooh. Series. Ooh. So not just this episode, series. It doesn't have to be us. But it would be good if it was. Do you know what I think for me was been really refreshing is I never normally sit on this side. Like I was saying, I've never done this before. Like I've always thought about doing it. I've never done it before. But the fact that I was greeted with reflected passion from everyone that sat in them seats was so nice. I never felt like it was my takeover. I felt like it was collectively everyone's. Even in today's episode, like when both of you are talking individually, it's like, it's about your story. It's about your story. And I'm just, I was happy that everyone came and gave it what they needed to give it. And they weren't going to be like, oh no, I don't want to talk about that. Or who's this person? (laughs) Or there was no stushness, no like drama around it. It was really easy. That I think was definitely really good. And then just learning I learned so much about so many different things. And it just goes to show you that there's more, there's more definitely that unites us than divides us. And everyone that's come on here has looked different. They come from different walks of life. They come from different social classes, backgrounds, religions, sexualities, everything. And just being, I feel honoured to just like hear these stories. And normally I would like, I wouldn't feel comfortable asking people to share stuff because exactly what you said, like with your phone call, you, you tell every, you tell it and then it's like, 
okay, thanks guys, make sure you subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I don't feel like this podcast is like that. It's very well-rounded. So it's like we start, we go, and then we finish. And it's a safe space. Yeah, safe yeah. Space, it is yeah. definitely a safe space. And on that note, we have come to the end of my takeover. It is your boy, Hussein Manawa, the original mummy's boy, Ilford Finest, the wizard of the East End, with Holly Marie Cato and Professor Dame Tilwax. I just want to say one other thing to close it off. When she, when she told me about her award yet, I was like, so what did you get, £10,000? And she was like, 10,000 euros. <laughs> Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Powered by Spirit Studios.